one-week season. OWS fam, welcome to the week 13 edition of the OWS Angles podcast. I am your host, I am your guest, I am JM to win. As always, throw this baby on 1.5x speed or 2x speed, and let's get started with an audio only version of the Angles podcast. I restarted my Google Chrome this morning on my computer for the first time in, I guess, since the season started. And when I reopened it, all of my login stuff was gone. All my bookmarks were gone. My history was gone. Uh, I was unable to log into StreamYard and uh, Aaron was uh, in a position where he couldn't help me get logged in based on what he needed to do on his end. So uh, not able to record a video version this week. So audio only. Those of you who have been watching this on YouTube, hopefully you found your way here. Obviously, if you're listening to this, you are among those who found your way here. But uh, we will go old school this week and do audio only version. Interesting week ahead of us and some cool stuff to break down this week. So if you're new here, which it's sort of weird, right? If we're in like week nine or 10, I say, if you're new here, there's usually not very many of you. Uh, Now in week 13, there might be a good number of you because Black Friday, there tends to be another wave of new users come in. And then also just the function of uh, how the human psychology works, right? Uh, you see a lot of OWS penance in week 12 and you get more people in. Uh, pretty cool. We've had a lot of those weeks this year. Uh, I think we've only had two sort of down weeks for the OWS community. Uh, we've had three wins in the slant now this year. We've had a win in the flea flicker this last weekend. Uh, we've had all these other top five, top 10 finishes, all these other tournament wins. Uh, I got a second and eighth place finish in the Millie Maker this last week. So uh, those weeks where we see a lot of OWS penance at the tops of the leaderboards tend to get some new listeners in here. So uh, for those of you who are new, we have the angles email that goes out to all members on Thursday mornings. You can also find that in the scroll on the site. And in that email, we break down the macro overview of the slate. Then we get to the angles podcast and we take that same mindset and we sort of drill down to the second and third layers of what this slate really provides to us. So the core component of our thinking here is keeping in mind that DFS is not a game of picking players. DFS is a game of strategy. DFS is a game of game theory. DFS is a game of roster construction and how we build rosters that give us our best shot at a first place finish. So there's a lot that goes into that. That means focusing more on ceiling with the players we're picking than a lot of our competition does. That means giving ourselves fewer things we need to get right. That means giving ourselves things that when we get them right, they clear out our path to a first place finish. So that could mean a lower own piece, or that could mean the leverage that we're building into our rosters, or it can mean any number of other things. Uh, if you want to learn more about what we mean when we talk, when we talk about building for first place, uh, the best thing you can do is join Inner Circle because uh, that's what we focus on every week in Inner Circle We have uh, my midweek training podcast, Winter Circle, where we talk macro DFS strategy and theory through the lens of the week behind and the week ahead. We have the Slate podcast on Saturdays with Zandamir and Hilo, where they break down 
the slate position by position, talking about the strategies in play on that week's slate. Uh, then we have several other things for Inner Circle members as well that help you just become better DFS players. So with that, this week's slate, there are some interesting things to think about on this week's slate. There are some interesting things to talk about on this week's slate. Uh, so let's buckle up and let's dive in. The first thing that I want to talk about is just the shape of this slate from a standpoint of the game environments at hand. So obviously, uh, fantasy scoring comes from game environments. We get tend to get our highest ceiling from touchdowns scored. And if an offense is only going to score three touchdowns, for example, it's going to be that much harder for one individual player to score two touchdowns. Not to say that they can't, but in terms of clearing out our paths to that, those high ceiling scores, one of the things we can always be looking for is the teams or the game environments with higher scoring potential. So obviously the most basic way to look for that is to look at implied team totals, look at over-unders, but we also want to understand that that is essentially a median projection. So we want to also be thinking about which teams, which games, or which players could go dramatically over that median projection. So on this week, this is a very important thing to think about where we have these two teams between uh, these two games. We got uh, Miami at Washington and we have San Francisco at Philadelphia. So we'll take both of these games first. Uh, we'll look at this Miami and Washington game. So what we have with this Miami Washington game is we have a Miami team that's really good at scoring points. We have a Miami team that is really aggressive and creative in how they attack. Taking on this Washington pass defense that has been absolutely battered all season long by most opponents who have faced them. On the flip side of this game, we also have a Washington team that is one of the highest pass rate over expectation teams in the NFL, one of the most aggressive teams in the NFL. So from a standpoint of how these teams approach a game like this, if you're Miami or if you're Washington, you're approaching this game recognizing that, yes, you're trying to improve things on defense, you fire Jack Del Rio, but you're also being realistic and recognizing we probably have to score a lot of points in this game in order to win. So if you're Washington, now they could make the mistake. I wouldn't expect this with Eric Bieniemy calling the shots. Uh, the only way this would probably happen would be if Ron Rivera were to override Eric Bieniemy and say, hey, we want to attack this game this way. Uh, you, you sometimes see bad teams against good offenses like this thinking, hey, maybe if we slow down the game and just control the ball and control the clock, we can find a way to win this game. Uh, probably not the way that Washington will attack this game because that's not the way Eric Bieniemy and Sam Howell have been attacking games all season. So what we should instead expect is Washington to come into this game and say, we're going to have to score points in this game. We're going to attack aggressively. We're going to continue to pass. We're going to try to score points, as many points as we can, as quickly as we can each time we have the ball. Uh, that should compel Miami to, even if they take an early lead, to not run into one of those situations where they're taking an early lead and then taking their foot off the gas pedal, but to instead recognize, okay, Washington is going to stay aggressive. Washington is going to stay aggressive through the air. And all it takes is one or two big plays hitting and all of a sudden they're back in this game. And so we need to stay aggressive on our end and continue to try to score as many points as we can as quickly as we can. Then we have this Philadelphia and uh, this the San Francisco and Philadelphia game, which falls very much into the same bucket of what we talked about last week with Buffalo at Philadelphia. 
And that is one of the things we talked about last week was that when the Eagles had played the Dolphins earlier in the year, uh, one of the beat beat reporters for the Eagles brought up to Nick Sirianni the fact that the Eagles had taken up more of the play clock when they had the ball early in that game. So in other words, instead of snapping the ball with whatever, 10 seconds left, 12 seconds left on the play clock, they were kind of letting, letting, letting the play clock burn down uh, closer to zero before they were snapping the ball early in that game against the Dolphins. And the question was asked of Nick Sirianni, was this intentional? Were you guys trying to keep the, was this a strategy to try to keep the Dolphins offense off the field? And Nick Sirianni vehemently shut that down and said, we will never be a team that is using our time with the ball to try to keep the opponent off the field. We will never be a team that's trying to be conservative in that way, uh, using our offense to play defense, so to speak. He said, we will always be an aggressive offense. We will always try to score as many points as we can as quickly as we can. So what we said last week with the Bills coming in in that matchup was you had an opportunity for the Bills to be forced to respond with the same type of mindset. Uh, we have that same type of thing this week where the Eagles are going to be aggressive. They're going to score, try to score as many points as they can as quickly as they can against a 49ers defense that faces the highest opponent pass rate over expectation in the NFL. The Eagles defense faces the second highest opponent pass rate over expectation in the NFL. Uh, Both of these teams are very aggressive minded coaches, coaches who have that mindset of trying to score as many points as they can as quickly as they can when they have the ball. They do it in different ways, but both of these teams are very aggressive in the way that they approach their NFL games. So we have two teams that should be passing the ball a lot, two teams with an aggressive mindset with a very important game on the line in terms of potential playoff seating and just in terms of the way that these teams view themselves moving forward into the season, into the playoffs, so on and so forth. Uh, So another game where you have that opportunity, the over-under is 48 The 49ers are implied to score 25.5. The Eagles are implied to score 22.5. But the opportunity to the upside, so again, Vegas is saying 50% of the time this game will finish below 48 combined points. Uh, If I were in a, I'm in in Missouri, right? I've been in Oklahoma and Missouri this week where uh, I can't do any betting. But if I were in a state where I could do betting, this is a game where I would take the over. Uh, And as I noted, I noted this last week when I said the same thing about the Bills and Eagles, I don't typically bet. Over-unders, I don't typically bet game lines because those tend to be very efficient. So the only time I bet them is when I see something that is pretty inefficient. So similar to last week, Bills and Eagles, this is one that I would bet the over. Now, granted, this isn't as strong of an overbet as last week's was because Brock Purdy who is very good, Brock Purdy is not Josh Allen, right? Where Josh Allen can just be a one-man wrecking crew and kind of take over a game and, and kind of force the game to continue on this upward trajectory. Uh, the 49ers as an offense as a whole can kind of force the game onto that upward trajectory, but it's not the same as having just that one guy who can come out and do that. But still, it's one of those games that I would expect to finish over more than 50% of the time. But more importantly, for our purposes, when it goes over, it has the opportunity to go well over. So both these games, Dolphins at Commanders, 49ers at Eagles, are games where there is opportunity for the scoring to end up being sort of fast and furious as we move into the the latter portion of the first half and then especially as we move into the second half of these games. So when we are looking at other games on the slate, I want to think of them in terms of 
if these two games, now there's different ways you could look at it, right? You could say, hey, maybe I want to bet on both of these games underwhelming and then I'll go a different direction. And especially in MME play, you could build some rosters that do that. And you want to be very conscious of what you're saying with those rosters, what bets you're placing with those rosters so that you're telling a story with your rosters that makes sense. So in other words, if you're going to say, hey, I'm going to build around a scenario in which Denver and Houston is the game that ends up taking off. And we'll, we'll talk about that game here in just a moment. But you could say, I want to build around a scenario where Denver and Houston is the game that takes off. Well, you have to recognize that it has to take off at a level above San Francisco, Philadelphia, above Miami, Washington. And so you want to be cognizant of how you're building that roster so that you're accounting for that story. You might want to build so that you're saying that maybe both of those games underwhelm, maybe both those games go under their over-unders, maybe all those teams go under their implied team totals. And so then this is the game that ends up taking off and and that you need to have the Houston and Denver game. And then you kind of build in, you know, one or two other pieces around that, one or two other games that you might see around that. But the way I'm looking at this slate is the chances are pretty high that one of these two games and and really both of these games go off. Though when I look at this kind of third best game on the slate, which is Broncos at Texans, when I look at that game, actually there's another game that according to over-unders is kind of in that same range, which is Lions at Saints. Uh, Lions implied for 25.5, Saints implied for 21.5. That's a 47 point total. Uh, And then we've got the Broncos and the uh, Texans that the over under right now is 47 and a half with the Broncos implied for 22.5. The Texans implied for 25.25, sorry, Broncos 22.25 Texans, 22.25.25. The way I look at this Broncos and Texans game is on the Texans side, Bobby Slowick is very opponent specific in how he calls his game plans for this Texans offense. And one of the things that we see when we look at the Broncos defense is that they have allowed the most rushing yards to running backs in the NFL this year. They have allowed the fifth fewest receiving yards to wide receivers this year. And they've allowed the seventh most receiving yards to tight ends this year. So the way that teams are compelled to attack this Broncos defense is through running backs and tight ends. And of course, attacking through running backs and tight ends doesn't create nearly as many opportunities for splash plays. And that's really what the Denver Broncos defense is trying to do is prevent opponents from getting splash plays and force them to march the field. So what that ends up doing is it lowers the opportunity for a game to just absolutely take off. And we've seen that as we look through, you know, since the Broncos kind of turned the page from that early season, the early street season struggles they had on defense. We've seen that over the last two months of play for the Broncos where they haven't allowed opposing offenses, including Kansas City twice, including uh, Buffalo who scored 22 against and They haven't allowed these opposing offenses to have these big games where things just take off. So could Houston do it? Absolutely. But could they do it at the rate where the field is likely to bet on them doing it? I'm just not seeing it myself. So that's how I'm going to approach this week myself is to say, yeah, sure. 50% of the time, this game might go over its total. And that total might be the same as this 49ers Eagles game and similar to this uh, Dolphins and Commanders game. But when this game goes over its total, I don't see as many opportunities for going up to 58 points, 64 points, 70 combined points like these other two games could end up doing. Uh, So that takes us over to the other side where, uh, you know, the Broncos are 
they're a Sean Payton offense, right? So they're going to be creative. They're going to continue to find ways to maneuver their way up and down the field and to score points when they get into the red zone. But that's not the same as a team that is just going out there, putting the ball in the hands of their quarterback and attacking, 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 and putting up these big scores. So uh, I wouldn't say that they're a reactionary team, but they are very much a chess match type of team where they're going to continue to find the weaknesses of the defense, continue to try to keep the defense off balance, and continue to put drives together that end in points, which is, again, very different from a game where you're just hitting big play after big play. So uh, both of these teams kind of more teams that suppress, or I should say uh, the Broncos, both sides of this game, uh, suppress the opportunity for explosive game environments. And even if we hit the over in this game, it would tend to be the type of over that doesn't really lend itself to just can't win without it type of fantasy production from these pieces. So uh, that's how I see this game with regards to the other two games. It doesn't mean that you're seeing these games the same way. You want to balance how you're seeing them in your head. But I, I highlight that first off just to give you a look into how I'm seeing it. But then also to say we have to be thinking about that on a slate like this, where especially on a slate like this, where there probably won't be that many separator scores. There probably, if there is a separator game environment, it will probably be one or two games. And if there are separator scores, there will probably just be a small number of them. That's not going to be almost certainly not going to be one of these weeks where we just see, you know, five different running backs score 30 plus points and seven or eight wide receivers score 30 plus points. And you can mix and match them different ways and kind of end up with all these different pathways to a bunch of points. It's probably going to be one of those weeks where maybe no running backs top 30 points. And if any of them do, it might be just one or two guys, maybe no wide receiver. Well, some, some wide receivers are going to top 30 points. Uh, Tyree kill foremost among them will probably top 30 points, but you know, maybe only one or two wide receivers top 30 points. Uh, maybe only three or four wide receivers top 30 points, maybe only three or four top 25 points. And so you have to have those right pieces in place. And so you want to be thinking about what can separate from the field on this particular week. And every roster spot that you take up with players or game environments that cannot separate from the field is a roster spot that is preventing you from finding the player or game environment that can separate from the field. So if you are going to build around a game like Houston and Denver, which I'm going to do a little a little bit of that in MME, I, or at least I expect to do a little bit of that in MME, and I've said this week that you know I might have say I have 13 total rosters that are in single entry three max, maybe 11 of those are built around Philadelphia, San Francisco, and Miami, Washington, and I reserve two for like a CJ Stroud and a Russell Wilson. Like I could end up doing that, but by and large, my focus is going to be on these other two games because those are the games that I see having potential to separate from the field. So even if you are going to that Denver Houston game is the one that you want to build around, you want to make sure that you're building around it saying, okay, let me build around a scenario in which this game separates from the field and make sure that you're thinking about that uh, in the way that you're attacking this slate. Uh, Another game that we should get to is this Lions and Saints game. Uh, So we want to think about how a coaching staff is going to think about a particular game. So if you are the Lions, you're playing against a Saints team that is expected to be without, well, Rashid Shahid, I believe they said today that he's out. Uh, The expectation is that Chris Olave will be out because it's difficult to clear concussion protocol in one week. So the expectation is that Chris Olave will be out. And then obviously Michael Thomas is already out. So if you're the Lions and you're taking on a team on the road that is expected to be without all three of their top three wide receivers, Are you going to come into this game 
with an aggressive sling the ball around the field mentality? Or are you going to come into this game playing the way that the Lions already like to play, which is they're going to pass the ball, obviously, but it's going to be primarily short areas, short and intermediate passing, uh, a lot of running, a lot of running in the red zone, and kind of control this game, smash mouth game, wear down the Saints defense, recognizing that your offense against their defense has an edge over their offense against your defense. So if you continue to play clean football, march the field, score points on every drive, you're going to gradually gain hold of an edge in this game and force the Saints to try to battle back from behind with a completely depleted cast of weapons. Same thing on the Saints side. If you are down your top three wide receivers, what are your opportunities for splash play. So we know that you can't run the ball against Detroit. You have to pass the ball against Detroit. And then how many big downfield plays are you going to be hitting when Rashid Shahid and Chris Olave are your two downfield guys and they're both out for this game and you're dealing with, you know, effectively, we, we mentioned this in the DFS interpretations this week, but you could say that Jawan Johnson is their number four wide receiver. He plays almost exactly 50% of his snaps from the slot. Uh, he's their number four pass catcher. And so you're dealing with your fifth, sixth, and seventh wide receivers, well, how much are you going to be attacking down the field with these guys? And so what is the opportunity for just this quick scoring back and forth type of game to develop in this game environment? So uh, similarly, there are pieces from this game that you could look at, but can you look at this game and say, oh man, I, like, I think that this game is just going to become really high scoring and just come back and forth. So we should, as we always talk about, like we need to be able to see each unique over-under for what it signifies in that particular game. And the unique over-unders in the Lions and Saints game, and the to a lesser extent, but also in this Broncos and Texans game, uh, tells different stories than the similar over-unders in these other two games that we've touched on. So uh, that's how I'm seeing the slate and thinking very much about what game environments can separate. Now, a quick little side trail on the Saints. Uh, mentioned this in the player grid. I do think it's worth, again, getting into a coach's mind and thinking about, okay, how will the Saints try to win this game? If you are the Saints and you're preparing for this game, they're a very creative team. Pete Carmichael is a creative offensive coordinator, and they're going to be thinking about how do we leverage our best players in order to win this game. So who are the best players on the Saints right now? The best players are Alvin Kamara and Taysom Hill. Uh, put Jawan Johnson kind of behind that, those two, and then ahead of the rest of the pass catchers. So uh, to me, Kamara, obviously, bad matchup on the ground, really high price tag. Uh, his chances of putting up you know, a 30-plus point game are somewhat low. And then even if he does that, that, that just kind of justifies his price tag. So his chance of putting up like a had-to-have-a game pretty low. So he's not the guy I'm as attracted to. I do think I'll probably have a little bit of him in large field play just because there is this interesting, interesting pathway where just the usage and the talent, obviously not as explosive as of a player as he used to be, but the usage and the talent could lead to him having a big game. But uh, what really draws my eye then is Taysom Hill. And what's cool about this spot is it's similar to what we talked about last week and understanding how our competition builds for each slate. And there's the, we talked about this last week was that there's kind of two sides to our competition. There's our, the field, which is the, more casual players, whether they realize it or not, how they're building. And then there are the sharps and the sharps are the people we're really truly competing against for those first place finishes. And the sharps are going to lean into projections and sims, and those are going to lean heavily into over-unders and implied team totals. So there are mistakes that they can end up making where these guys are, are so good at DFS strategy and theory that they're okay making some small mistakes 
on a given slate, on a given NFL slate, because they're leaning too heavily into projection systems that are leaning too heavily into over-unders and implied team totals, right? Because over time, they have an edge from their strategy and theory. They have an edge in that they have that edge in all the DFS sports that they're playing, that they're not worried about mining out that tiny little bit that they might be getting wrong uh, in these individual spots, right? So we can get an edge over them if we can apply proper DFS strategy and theory. Uh, and this is why we've seen, as we talk about this, right? Like this is why we've seen so much OWS success at the very tops of leaderboards this year and why so much of that success has come from inner circle members because a lot of these inner circle members, is, they're on their third year now or second year now of consuming this strategy and game theory information week in and week out and understanding how to blend that with the superior NFL knowledge that we have uh, and put together just sharper overall rosters and roster sets than our sharpest competition is putting together. Uh, so similar to last week where we could see that the bills implied and, and as we expected and as Zandamir expected uh, in his ownership projection updates, you know, the, the, uh, Ownership expectations for Josh Allen were higher than what like algorithmic ownership projections were showing. And so there like that still ended up being higher owned than ownership projections were showing, but it still ended up being way lower owned than it should have been. And part of that was Josh Allen's bills had this 22 and a half point implied team total. And so he just didn't project well at his price tag. And so there's certain things where we can see what's really going to happen on the field. And we can take that leap beyond what the projections are saying, beyond what an optimizer would spit out and build sharper rosters as a result. So this Taysom Hill thing is one of those types of situations where there's no projection system. This is why there have been projection systems that have talked to us over the years about, you know, would you be able to consult with us on Saturdays on some of the blind spots that a projection system is going to have? And it's because there are certain things like this that they just cannot see. They won't be able to see that Taysom Hill should project well in this spot because the Saints should emphasize him in their offensive game plan in this spot. So uh, that's one of the really interesting ones we can think about from this particular game environment uh, in terms of a player that could separate, right? Because he's capable of putting up those outlier types of scores. So uh, we want to be thinking about which game environments can outscore all the others. And to me, there's kind of two that really stand out. And then if you want to branch out to these other game environments, you want to be thinking about how you can build a story, build for a scenario in which those game environments that you're building around separate from all the other game environments. Uh, similarly with the quarterbacks. So can the quarterbacks from the other games outscore the quarterbacks from these two game environments? And that's kind of the question that I'm going to be asking this week. And obviously they can, right? But like, what story do you want to tell? Because it's not about just picking players. It's about telling specific stories about how these different games will play out on that particular week. And if you get the stories right, you end up winning tournaments on that particular week. And so one of the stories that I want to tell this week is that of these quarterbacks, right? I'll throw Russell Wilson into the pile because like I said, I'll have a little bit of him, maybe a tiny bit of him in single entry, three max, and I'll have a, a little bit of him in MME. But Sam Howell, Brock Purdy, Russell Wilson, Sam Howell, who, as we've mentioned throughout the week, uh, actually averages more DraftKings points per game than Tua. Uh, there's only three quarterbacks on this slate who average more DraftKings points per game than Sam Howell. Those are three guys priced at 8K and above in CJ Stroud, Justin Herbert, and Jalen Hurts. Uh, but Sam Howell, Brock Purdy, Russell Wilson, right? If you want to throw him in into this discussion, like do the other, it's not about, you know, taking one of these guys. It's about recognizing that these three guys are available in these three game environments. And so do one of the cheaper guys outscore all three of them? 
because all three of these guys are going to get ownership. And so if even if just one of these three guys ends up outscoring the cheaper guys, then you should have been on one of those three guys and not on the cheaper guys. So not to say that a Gardner Minshew or a Baker Mayfield or however you might want to attack this can't outscore these guys, but you want to really be thinking about it. You know, the, the extra 300, 500, 700, whatever you're getting in savings, it doesn't matter because once we turn over the cards, what you spent for these players doesn't matter. What matters is how many points you get from them. So recognize that if you're playing one of these cheaper quarterbacks, you need to be telling a story of these cheaper quarterbacks outscoring the higher these these other three guys who are in these really good game environments or these two guys who are in these really good potential game environments plus Russell Wilson who I know a lot of people like this week and it's a game environment that as I said could develop into something its highest end is not the same as the highest end of these other two games but if these other two games come in kind of below or finish in like their 30th percentile outcomes uh, and that Broncos Texans game ends up in the 70th, 80th percentile outcome, you still end up with a really nice edge in going to that game. So uh, when you're thinking about these cheaper quarterbacks, think about can they outscore all three of these other guys? Uh, Okay, that brings us similar type of thought process that I'm going to talk about at the running back and wide receiver position around two key players. So if you've already read the player grid, my player grid on in the scroll, you know that I pointed you toward the angles podcast for my sort of strategy breakdown around these two players beyond just like my player pool breakdown on these two players. So uh, these two guys are Zach Moss and Tyreek Hill. So Zach Moss uh, kind of becomes, comes into the same discussion that we just had with the cheaper quarterbacks that once you flip over the cards, it doesn't matter what you paid for a guy. What matters is the score that you get. So Zach Moss is 4,600. Zach Moss is going to project really well in projection systems because he's too cheap for his workload and his point per dollar multiplier is going to look really good. Of course, that doesn't account for what his 99th percentile outcome is or his 90th percentile outcome is and and why I was going to say how likely he is to get to that 90th percentile outcome, but technically you'd be likely to get there 10% of the time. Uh, but But... What is what is true 90th percentile outcome? I'll say it like that. Like if we played out this slate 100 times, truly, what would be his highest score in those top 10 games that he would produce in this matchup? And then compare that to what's the 90th percentile outcome for all these guys priced at 52K, 54K, 57K, 59K, 6K, 6,300. Is Zach Moss a dramatically better raw projected points play than these guys? Absolutely not. So that's not to say that Zach Moss can't go out and put up 25 points. That's not to say that he's not a good play. He is a good play this week, even taking the salary off, right? If we just say he's underpriced, he should be like 5,700. He should be 5,900. Well, if he were 57 or 5,900, if he were just like 1K, a little bit more than 1K more in salary, would he be projecting for 50% ownership? And if he's 50% owned in large field play, he's probably going to be 70% owned in single entry play. So basically, this is my way of saying, A, yes, Zach Moss is a good play. B, yes, you have permission to put together a sharp roster that doesn't include Zach Moss because Zach Moss doesn't project dramatically better from a raw points standpoint than these guys who are priced about 1k above him. So I think that there can be a trap on a week like this to get so locked into the price tag and thinking like, man, Zach Moss is a must play because he's only 4,600 and he's going to have this type of workload. So then let's break down. Like we're talking about a guy who doesn't have a large schemed role in the pass game. 
He might catch five or six passes, but he probably catches two or three passes. Doesn't have a large schemed role in the pass game, and he's playing the number two DVOA run defense. Like, that's not a great setup. So as I mentioned in the DFS interpretations for this game, Zach Moss put up 165 yards in this matchup earlier this year. But the second best game in this matchup was uh, Jalen Warren put up 88 yards on only 11 carries. But we know Jalen Warren's very explosive, can hit for these big plays. So like all that means is Jalen Warren, like there was a play where the Titans defense messed up, right? Jalen Warren hits for a big play and all of a sudden it looks like a pretty nice stat line. But by and large, teams don't put up good running back stat lines against Tennessee. So is Zach Moss a good play? Yes. Is Zach Moss a dramatically better play than everything else that's available? No. And so we want to keep that in mind. So other running backs that we'll hit on, obviously, in the player grid, but uh, Najee Harris, Jalen Warren, I won't, I won't spend time diving into the specifics on these guys right now, but Najee Harris, Jalen Warren, Javante Williams, Devin Singletary, Ramondre Stevenson, uh, and Rashad White. I will mention uh, Devin Singletary real quickly, just that he played over 80% of the Texans snaps last week. And I think box score, well, I know box score watchers are looking and just saying, oh, well, he only had a few carries and uh, Damian Pierce had a few carries. So they're back to splitting the work. I'm shocked that his ownership projection is as low as it is currently like sub 3% because I would think that content providers would be digging deeper and seeing, well, Devin Singletary played over 80% of the snaps, and I'll amplify this statistic to content consumers, and more and more people will realize like, oh yeah, Devin Singletary is in a good spot here. Honestly, projection systems should be projecting Devin Singletary well in this spot against, again, a Broncos defense that's allowed the most running back rushing yards in the NFL, somewhat swayed by that game against the Dolphins, but still uh, a really soft run defense is the way to attack this team. And uh, if Devin Singletary is playing 80% of the snaps, again, he should project really well. So that's an interesting one that just, it's shocking that people are not on that one. Uh, But again, all these other guys, it won't be a shock, right? We play out this slate a hundred times. There are going to be a lot of times where three or four or even five of these running backs outscore Zach Moss. Because if we play out the slate a hundred times, there's going to be a number of times in which Zach Moss only scores 12, 13, 14 points where he catches two or three passes, where he puts up six points through the air, right? He catches three passes for 30 yards. It'd be a pretty nice game for him. And then only rushes for 60 yards and no touchdowns. And all of a sudden, he's 50% owned in large field play, 70% owned in, in single entry play. And he's getting 12 points for everybody who, who rostered him, right? And that's also taking away a roster spot from one of these other running backs who might be putting up 20 plus points. And most people won't play three running backs. So that's basically just meaning like they're taking the the disappointing score from Zach Moss and then they only get one other crack at the running back position on a week in which a lot of these kind of 5K, low 6K running backs look a lot better than the 5K, low 6K wide receivers. Kind of a rare situation for us in that regard. And that, you know, this year we've been hammering these, these 5K wide receivers and how many 30-point scores you've been able to mine from these 5K, low 6K wide receivers. But, you know, this week you've got Josh Downs who has one game above one game above 20 points on the season, uh, two games, two games above 15 points on the season. Uh, again, compare that to Greg Dortch, who in his eight games with significant snaps has four games above 15 points, four out of eight, uh, and has two games above 20 points. So Josh Downs, solid play, but like 
you know, is he likely to bury you for not having played him? Is he likely to have a monster game? No, not really. Uh, you've got Marquise Brown, who's still dealing with this heel issue, and his best game on the year is 17.4 DraftKings points. Uh, you've got Cortland Sutton, who has, uh, let's see, games on the year of 21.1 and 19.6 and 18.3. So a little bit low for what you'd want in this 5,400 price tag. And you also have to add in the fact that that's been on the backs of eight touchdown receptions. So kind of the games where he's not getting the touchdowns, he's really not hitting. You've got Terry McLaurin, who's going to be popular this week. And his best game is 22.6. His second best game is 17.3. You've got Amari Cooper with Joe Flacco throwing him the ball. You've got Garrett Wilson with Tim Boyle throwing him the ball. You have DeAndre Hopkins who has a game this year of 11 targets, a game of 11 targets. Uh, Again, actually, let's talk about since uh, Ryan Tannehill went out. So since Ryan Tannehill went out, he has a game of 11, a game of eight, a game of six, a game of five, a game of five, a game of five. So uh, DeAndre Hopkins, who, again, can he hit? Yes, but it's like, really, you look at the running backs and there's some pretty nice options in here. Go for 20 plus points where a lot of these wide receivers have not shown that type of ceiling on this year. So uh, I think that three running back builds are far more interesting than normal this week on my show with Pete this morning. He brought up the idea of actually going uh, no Zach Moss with three running backs to really take full advantage of that leverage that you can build in uh, if Zach Moss ends up failing to hit. So again, think about the stories that you're telling when you're not playing Zach Moss. Think about how you can gain that big advantage over the Zach Moss roster. Probably boost your Josh Downs a little bit on those type of builds and say that, uh, you know, the the Colts probably don't just completely underwhelm, uh, but then also build some rosters where you just say, man, the Titans have a lot of games where they hold opponents to 20 points and the, the Colts typically score, you know, 24 or fewer points. So wouldn't be a total shock if nobody from this offense ends up hitting in this spot. So build some scenarios around that as well. Uh, I, I think some interesting things to think about. So for me, I'll, I mean, I honestly don't know what I'll have of Zach Moss, but it could be anywhere from like 15% to 40% owned. Uh, and I'm kind of bounced around in my thoughts there, but um, probably more like that 25 to 35% range to where, yeah, like that's where I feel like he belongs, right? So I'll be underweight the field, but not necessarily from a strategy standpoint, just so much as a standpoint of, hey, there's different ways to win on this slate. And that's my favorite way to play the strategy is first step is like, what do I like? and kind of figure out my allocations and then see where I'm different from the field and then see how I can, in the places where I'm being different from the field, really maximize the advantage that I'm getting in how I'm being different from the field. Uh, And then, again, how we want to think about Zach Moss is, yeah, he's a great play and he's underpriced and he could put up a 22 to 25 point score. He also has that 36 pointer this year, right? It's not likely to come in this game, but he's capable of doing it, right? So we want to think about, yeah, he's a good play, but we also want to think about the fact that there are clear pathways to him putting up kind of a lower end game in this spot against this really good run defense. Uh, And so we want to account for that as well. So he's not the kind of guy that I'm like, oh man, I got to put in 100% Zach Moss because he's underpriced because I still want to think about the raw points and what his range of raw points is and what the edge might be. Flip that over to Tyreek Hill. And the way I'm looking at Tyreek Hill is, again, I mean, and this is just absolutely bonkers, but 25.8 points, right? Let's take that. Eight of his 11 games, he's scored at least 25.8 DraftKings points. Uh, Most of these games kind of up 30 plus points. Um, To put that in perspective, you know, last year, last year, Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase both had fantastic years for wide receivers. And I believe Justin Jefferson was nine out of 17 games, kind of in that scoring range of like 27 plus points. Jamar Chase was, I believe, eight out of 17 games in that range. And then all their misses were kind of in that like 15 point range. So you knew that about 50% of the time you were going to get a really disappointing score from them. Tyreek Hill, 
eight out of 11 games, he's been at you know the 25.8 threshold and above. And his disappointing games have all been pretty predictable heading into them. So uh, his disappointing games have been against New England early in the season when they were healthy, uh, against Buffalo early in the season when they were healthy, and then against Kansas City, that great pass defense that they have. He actually hit against the Jets, another game that you could have uh, predicted, probably a disappointing, underwhelming game from him. He still managed to hit in that one. Uh, the Panthers really solid pass defense. The Raiders, really solid pass defense. He hit in both those. As we talked about on those weeks, those defenses are really solid for less for their talent and more for their scheme and communication and their discipline. And so it's just like a player like Tyreek Hill can just bust through a team that's good because of those things as opposed to good because of their talent. Um, and so this is a week against a, a Washington pass defense that has gotten lit up over and over again throughout the season where, look, Tyreek Hill could score 27 points. 28 points, 29 points. And and you could say, well, you really overpaid for that type of score. Now, one of the things we always say is anytime you get 30 points, it's valuable, regardless of what you paid for it, because there just aren't going to be that many 27-plus point scores, 30-plus point scores on a given slate. So anytime you get those, those points, it's valuable. Yes, you can win a tournament without Tyreek Hill if he only scores 27, 28, 29, 30 points. But what we want to think about is not what can you do if this guy hits his lower range, what we want to think about is what, what can we know heading into this game? And what we can know heading into this game is that Tyreek Hill is capable of burying you for not playing. And he's capable of putting up 35, 40, 45 points in a spot like this. And even if he misses, he's probably getting you 27, 29, 30 plus points. So the way that I plan to approach this, this slate this week, especially because I don't foresee a lot of 30 point scores on this slate. It's not like, it's not a week where it's like, man, what if Tyreek Hill scores 27 and then there's six other guys who could also score 30 plus points. And you're like, what if two or three of these guys score 40 and I'm boxing myself out of getting them because I have hundred percent Tyree kill, right? This is not a week like that. This is a week where Tyreek Hill could score 30 and he could be the only high priced guy who does that. And then maybe we sneak out one or two cheap guys who score 30 plus and that's it on the slate, right? So the way that I'm personally approaching this week as of right now, as of Friday, and obviously I'll update you in the Sunday morning update if this changes, it won't change dramatically if at all, right? It might change to where I'm like 70% Tyree Kill because I never, I typically never go 100%. I almost went 100% Josh Allen last week. I almost went 100% Raheem Mostert against the Panthers earlier this year. Uh, I almost went 100% Kyron Williams and and. Puka Nakua, the week that they combined for 65 points, uh, didn't pull the 100% trigger on any of those. So this is the next time that I'm thinking about going 100% on a player, kind of leaning toward actually pulling the trigger, uh, but I'm leaning toward going 100% Tyree Kill. And that's sort of the strategy breakdown in my mind is that there probably won't be a lot of 30-point scores available on this slate. So even if Tyree Kill underwhelms with the 27 to 30-pointer, I'm still getting a really good score, right? I overpaid for it, but there's value available. There's Greg Dortch available. There's uh, even, you could say, Elijah Moore available. There's Brevin Jordan available. There's Juwan Johnson available. Uh, there's Zach Moss available, right? There's value available on this slate that I have built a lot of rosters that I really like. And by really like, I don't mean salary multiplier like. I mean, like, Greg Dortch should be priced at 4,900 to 5,500, right? I mean, Zach Moss should be priced at 5,900. Uh, I mean, Brevin Jordan should be priced at 3,300 or 3,400 with Dalton Schultz trending toward being out in the spot and the Broncos uh, filtering so many targets to the tight end position. Broncos, uh, as we already mentioned, have allowed the seventh most uh, tight end receiving yards this year. So uh, like there's a lot of guys where it's not like, 
oh, like this guy can go for 4X and, you know, I'm happy with that. It's a lot of guys where I'm like, no, this guy's really underpriced. I like this roster that I'm building. The Kind of the first time I did this, it was accidental. Rosters with Tyree Kill and AJ Brown or Tyree Kill and Christian McCaffrey. And what I mean by accidental is I was just messing around trying to build a roster I liked and I got down to that last spot on my roster and had 9K in salary left over. And I was like, wait, do I have Tyree Kill on this roster? Did I mess up? Did I not put Tyree Kill on this roster? And I looked at him and was like, all right, I do have Tyree Kill. Christian McCaffrey's 9K. Uh, AJ Brown's 8,800. Like I can build a roster with Tyree Kill and one of these other guys. So uh, I want to be looking at the fact that Tyree Kill's floor is so high. His ceiling is so high. And it's a slate where even if he hits his floor, I don't feel like that's going to kill me because that might still be the player that you had to have. And I can build in such a way that if the other player I had to have is... Christian McCaffrey, I can still have him. If the other player I had to have was A.J. Brown, I still have him, and then everybody else is priced below that, right? So you can still build a roster around Tyree Kill that fits in uh, like a ton of upside. So that's the way that I'm planning to approach this week is just look at Tyree Kill as potentially a 100% guy on my 150 max rosters, obviously then have him on my single entry three max builds across the board. Uh, So that kind of wraps... What I wanted to talk about here, I guess the last thing I wanted to mention here is uh, a thought of the 49ers. It's really difficult to predict who on their offense is going to hit, but it's pretty easy to predict that someone on their offense will probably hit. Um, If somebody on their offense hits, then rosters will have that guy. And if rosters have that guy, you are either chasing that roster for first place now, or you are one of those rosters and other people are chasing you. So the 49ers passing attack, I want to be thinking about that and kind of, even though they're difficult to predict uh, and it kind of sucks to do it, like where you're like, man, I'm going to get two of these rosters wrong, right? Ideally, one of these guys scores 30 points, another one scores 20 and doesn't kill you. And then one of them kind of disappoints, right? So only only that guy's rosters end up hurting you. But uh, I could end up just mixing and matching 49ers pieces in like a bunch of different ways saying, you know, if there's not going to be a lot of 30 pointers on this slate, and if one of them could, end up, you know, 27 plus point scores, we'll call it, if there won't be a lot of 27 plus point scores on this slate, and if one of them is probably going to come from the 49ers, I want to make sure that I'm giving myself that opportunity to get that 49ers piece in the right place, you know, on the, on the right roster. So uh, maybe mix and match those. And then you could say the same thing with the commanders on their cheaper pieces. If you think the commanders keep pace in this spot, you don't just think it's a, a Miami blowout, then one of these cheaper pieces is going to hit at a really nice salary multiplier. Now that's not quite the same as saying one of these guys hitting for 27 plus points on a week where there aren't a lot of 27 plus point scores available. So Washington, a little bit less so than San Francisco. Um, but that value of saying, you know, even though it's tough to predict where the points are going to come from, uh, kind of mix and match some of these pieces. So, uh, I could viably be like 100% of my rosters have a 49ers piece, uh, maybe not 100%, but close to 100%. Um, I won't have that with the commanders, but we'll also be mixing and matching those pieces as well, because it's a slate where, you know, the field is kind of leaning into the the Michael Pittman type plays, right? Where they're going to be happy because he didn't bomb. He got them 17 points or 21 points or 22 points or whatever at 7K in salary. But it's like, okay, you guys be happy with that. I'm going to try to find the guys who can score 30. And uh, if I'm able to nail those, you know, enough of those across my rosters and I kind of soar ahead of everybody who's kind of taking that middle of the road type of approach on this week. Okay, with that, let's turn the page over to our bottom-up build. Bottom-up build, real quickly, if you're unfamiliar with it. Uh, bottom-up build, we build a roster with a 44K salary cap. We also try to talk about, not just about uh, how we save salary on this roster and just take a bunch of value plays, but also 
how we would try to build if everyone were working with a 44K salary cap. So in other words, how we build in as much upside as we can, how we think about strategy uh, and roster construction technique and theory. Uh, and then we actually have a contest with a 44K salary cap called the Bottom Up Build Contest. The rules are simple. Got to build with a salary cap of 44K or below. You can find the link in my player grid or in the OWS Discord in the bottom up build channel. Uh, really cool prizes to the top five spots in that contest. Uh, Got to be using an OWS avatar in order to be eligible to win. But also, if you don't want to use an OWS avatar, it's fun to just play that contest and uh, have that thought exercise of playing with a 44K salary cap. Okay, so this week's bottom up build, really pretty straightforward. Um, Sam Howell at quarterback. You guys know, I mean, Sam Howell has been, I think it's like four weeks this year, five weeks this year that he's been my highest owned quarterback. Uh, I've ridden the highs with Sam Howell. I've ridden the lows. He's definitely been my highest owned quarterback on, I believe his two lowest scoring weeks of the year, or maybe at least his two of his three lowest scoring weeks of the year. But he's also been one of my highest owned quarterbacks or my highest owned quarterback on his highest scoring weeks of the year. Um, Volatile guy, wide range of outcomes, but in this spot where you know they're going to be passing and trying to attack downfield, uh, I think an interesting note here is actually a couple things. One, you can look through the game logs of um, or I should say of the statistics of what Miami has allowed to quarterbacks this year. And it's like, oh, Miami's pretty good against quarterbacks. But realistically, uh, they've played Mac Jones twice. They played Daniel Jones and Tyra Taylor. They've played Bryce Young. They've played Aiden O'Connell. They've played Tim Boyle. I mean, that's a pretty nice setup for making your surface stats look pretty good. Then in week one, there was that week where the Dolphins basically invited the Chargers to run the ball. It was where Joshua Kelly had that monster game on the ground. Justin Herbert didn't throw the ball a lot, so those stats didn't look very good. Uh, The Chiefs threw the ball only 30 times in that overseas matchup against the Dolphins. So those stats didn't look very good. Uh, Outside of that, the Dolphins have allowed 306 yards and a touchdown to Russell Wilson, 320 yards and four touchdowns to Josh Allen, 279 yards and two touchdowns to Jalen Hurts. Uh, Dolphins have also lost Jalen Phillips, who doesn't have the name value of some of the bigger name edge rushers in the NFL. And he is not quite in that bigger name category in terms of TJ Watt and Miles Garrett, Max Crosby and those guys. But Jalen Phillips is in the tier. Like there's like six guys up at the top and Jalen Phillips is in the tier right below that. So definitely a big hit to this defense. And I say all that to say, not not to say that Sam Howell is going to have a big game, but to say that he is certainly capable of having a really big game in this spot. So Sam Howell is our starting point for this bottom up build. Uh, wanted to pair him with, originally with Jahan Dotson and Curtis Samuel. Uh, Jahan Dotson and Curtis Samuel, very interesting pairing. Uh, mentioned this in the DFS interpretations, but uh, they, maybe I didn't, no, I didn't mention this in the DFS interpretation. So actually, let me make sure that I go through the full numbers here. Uh, so these two combined for 8.7K in salary. So as we've talked about over the years, you can almost treat that like, in your mind, treat it like an 8.7K wide receiver. So when you're thinking about, okay, how good is this, what we're getting from them, uh, would you pay for this for an 8.7K wide receiver? Well, in their last eight games together, Dotson and Curtis Samuel, three of those eight games have gone for 30 plus points. So we talked about last year, Justin Jefferson and Jamar Chase, about half of their games, they went for that 27 plus point score. 
Well, here's an 8.7K wide receiver that in three out of eight games has gone for 30 plus points. He also had a game of 24.5 combined points. So those games above 30 were 30.9, 34.0, and 32.2, and then a 24.5 point game. Uh, And then three other games in the mid-teens. So again, same thing that you would have gotten from Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson in their misses last year. And then one absolute dud where uh, Jahan Dotson and Curtis Samuel combined for 2.6 points. But it's one of the ways that I want to look at Washington this week where it's so difficult to predict where the points are going to come from, but you can kind of take these two player pairings from them. Uh, also looked at Curtis Samuel and Logan Thomas. So thinking about them as a 7.7 K player, uh, as a 7.7 K player, they had a 25.5 pointer, a 22.6 pointer, another 25.5 pointer and a 40.2 pointer. So those 25 point scores slightly below what you'd want from that Forex salary multiplier standpoint, but, uh, across the board, you know, pretty solid scores from them. Uh, that's four out of their last eight games together, Curtis Samuel and Logan Thomas. Then they also, let's see, one, two, three, four games of 11 to 15 points. Uh, you could do the same thing with Jahan Dotson and Logan Thomas, 8.2K in salary. They have a 20, this is their last seven games together. They have a 27-pointer, a 21-pointer, a 44-pointer, an 18-pointer, uh, and then some games sub 14 points. But uh, yeah, just kind of mix and match these pieces different ways. I also want to acknowledge that Terry McLaurin, even though he hasn't hit yet, is still getting the usage that can produce a big game from him. So he's going to be popular, more popular than he should be, but still an interesting play, still a guy that I'll have some exposure to this week. So I uh, wanted to get some, some Sam Howell and Jahan Dotson and Curtis Samuel. Didn't quite work out in what else I wanted to do on this roster. So Uh, gave me an opportunity right there to talk about those pairings, but Sam Howell and Jahan Dotson is what I end up going with on this roster. Um, Obviously uh, what I want to trend toward on this roster is fitting in Tyreek Hill. So kind of a fun puzzle to put together to spend 9.6 K on one player where the salary cap is 44 K, but able to get Tyreek Hill on this roster. So Uh, We start with Sam Howell and Jahan Dotson and Tyreek Hill. How do I fit Tyreek Hill onto this roster? Pretty obvious, pretty straightforward. End up going with Zach Moss at running back, get those savings. End up going with Greg Dortch at wide receiver, get those savings. Because we're talking about a 44K salary cap contest, now obviously... I'm talking about this. You guys are listening to this. You guys will then go play the 44K salary cap contest. So this won't be as unique here as it would be in real life, right? If there were a true 44K salary cap contest outside of OWS. But if there were a true contest like that, uh, the Tyree Kill rosters would be much lower owned. And so you kind of end up with this unique setup where you've got uh, Sam Howell and Jahan Dotson, who's going to be one of the lower owned Washington pieces. And it's not going down to the Logan Thomas, Curtis Samuel to fit this one in to get up to Tyree Kill. Uh, you also have on this roster, Greg Dortch, who for some reason is still projecting for low ownership. People would prefer to play the fifth, sixth and seventh options on the Saints over uh, Greg Dortch, who, again, averaging eight games over the last two years, eight games where he's seen significant snaps, averaging 16.4 DraftKings points per game in those eight. Four of those eight games, he scored 15-plus DraftKings points. Two of those eight, he scored 20-plus DraftKings points. Seven of those eight, he scored double-digit DraftKings points. Uh, Compare that to Josh Downs, just as an example of where he's priced, where Josh Downs is priced. Uh, This is broken down in the player grid, but it's just like you can see uh, how dramatically underpriced Greg Dortch is for his typical range of production when he's actually seeing snaps. Uh, Michael Wilson out this week against a 
Pittsburgh defense that, as we know, doesn't allow a lot of points, but does allow a lot of yards. So Greg Dortch goes on this roster and, again, kind of further pushes me down this pathway of having something unique because, yeah, some people are going to figure out, like, with a 44K salary cap, I want to get Tyree Kill, but uh, the they're looking toward different pieces that I'm looking toward in terms of uh, Greg Dortch, Jahan Dotson, so still getting a unique roster construction. Brevin Jordan would probably be more popular on a 44K salary cap roster than he will be on the main slate, but still not trending toward being popular. And we've talked about that. He's going to be the pass-catching tight end for the Texans in a matchup that filters opponents towards passes to the tight end. So uh, why were we on Pat Fryermuth so heavily last week? It's because... Most quarterbacks are going to throw the ball where the defense tells them to throw the ball. And the Bengals defense tells opponents to throw the ball to the tight end. Same thing in this matchup against the Broncos. The Broncos defense tells opponents to throw the ball to the tight end. So that should funnel additional targets to Brevin Jordan. Probably not a huge schemed part of this passing attack, but you still end up in that situation where you could see four, five, six catches from a guy who costs only 2,500 in salary. This is not the Pat Fryermuth 2,900 week where he went out and scored 24 points. I don't expect that type of output from Brevin Jordan, but I could easily see him matching or outproducing Jawan Johnson or some of the other popular cheap tight ends, Logan Thomas, those guys. Uh, you know, he could put up 12 to 15 points and maybe those guys put up seven to nine points and he just ends up being a really nice value piece this week. Uh, and then Elijah Moore, a guy who I just haven't really been able to get away from this week for whatever reason. Uh, I don't really love the play. You know, he played with Joe Flacco in Flacco's four starts last year with the Jets. Uh, wasn't heavily emphasized by Flacco in those games. There was a 17-target game for Garrett Wilson last year with Flacco under center. Uh, certainly, one, and that was a, a game, you know, Flacco had these super high pass, three high pass attempt games, and then a game with 33 passes. And it was the 33 if I'm remembering this correctly, it was the 33 pass attempt game where Garrett Wilson had 17 targets. So just pretty uh, ridiculous uh, target numbers in that one. And Amari Cooper is that guy for the Browns, right? Uh, Amari Cooper somehow still does not have that reputation of like an elite wide receiver. But you look at what he does with even just barely competent quarterback play, and he's consistently producing these big games. He costs only 5,700. So I think he's really interesting, but also... You know, uh, there was a talk in our in our OWS text thread this week, Mike and, and Hilo and Zanamir and myself, and they were talking about, um, you know, are, are the Browns really going to like, is their game plan really going to be to just let Joe Flacco throw the ball? Well, uh, we wouldn't expect that, but you wouldn't have expected that to be their game plan with Dorian Thompson Robinson the last two weeks. And they, they did that, right? It was 43 pass attempts. And then um, between he and PJ Walker, I think it was like 36 pass attempts, something like that last week. So uh, could see Flacco throw the ball, you know, 35 times in this spot and uh, might be able to get the ball to Elijah Moore a little bit better than other quarterbacks for this offense have been able to. And it's a guy consistently sees seven to nine targets should see in that range again in this one uh, could eventually hit one of these big games. So uh, he's not underpriced in the way that some of these other guys are, but uh, you know, maybe he should be priced at 4k instead of 3,500, but we get some nice salary savings there. Uh, so that gives us Sam Howell, Zach Moss. Oh, I jumped over this one. Javante Williams, Javante Williams, again, very similar to Zach Moss, similar touch expectation, similar matchup. Uh, similar team scoring expectation. So get both these guys on here together. Uh, would have liked to have gotten, um, uh, I had Devin Singletary on here, but needed to get Brevin Jordan to fit in the Tyree Kill thing. So uh, it went from Falcons defense up to the Buccaneers defense and from Devin Singletary down to Javante Williams. Would have liked to have gotten Ramondre on here or Rashad White. Like I like all these guys this week. So uh, Zach Moss, uh, Sam Howell, Zach Moss, Javante Williams, Greg Dortch, Jahan Dotson, Tyree Kill, Brevin Jordan, Elijah Moore, and the Buccaneers defense, 
taking on Bryce Young and the Panthers passing attack. So that does it for this week. That takes up exactly 44K in salary and leaves us with 6K in leftover salary. Uh, interestingly, last week, our our second place finish in the Millie Maker from the OWS fam was almost the bottom-up build with just like a little bit changed from it. So uh, last week, I really liked the bottom-up build and I actually had that thought like, man, I could just apply 6K in salary to one player and keep this roster. Didn't end up doing it, wish I had. Uh, but another really sharp roster where um, you know, we see it all the time in the bottom up build contest. If you play it, you see it all the time. People scoring 180, 190, even 200 points with their bottom up build roster with 44K in salary. So uh, this is the sort of roster that has that type of ceiling. And then obviously you have some salary flexibility from here for the true 50K contests. So with that, we will get out of here. Apologies for the no video today. I know uh, watching faces in a box are fun, is fun, but uh, this week audio only. So we will get back to video next week. Hope we didn't lose too many viewers uh, when we get back to that next week. But uh, with that, I will get out of here. I will see you on OWS throughout the weekend, and I will see you at the top of the leaderboards, as always, on Sunday. Sunday.